James Farrell, son of actor Colin Farrell and model Kim Bordervane, was born in Cedars-Sinai Medical Center on September 12, 2003. James is a very happy child whose arms would always flap around as if he had little control of them. During a pediatric appointment, the doctor asked his parents if he was always this happy and if his arms always flapped around. They confirmed this to be true, and when asked by the doctor to confirm that he was fascinated, um, and when asked by the doctor, they confirmed that he was fascinated by water. These traits prompted the doctor to conduct some additional genetic tests on James, and he was later diagnosed with the rare genetic disorder Angelman syndrome. What this meant was that James would always have behaviour traits that would seem unusual to other people, and that he would struggle, if not fail, to meet certain developmental milestones. Speech and communication, if not impossible, would be very difficult and would require a lot of work to develop. Although there are many struggles, there are also successes. Much to the joy of his father, James took his first steps a few days before his fourth birthday. Since James's diagnosis, his father Colin Farrell has become a big advocate for Angelman syndrome. He is a proud father who dedicates most of his time to his children so that they get the best experiences in life and can enjoy what he could not while growing up. James is now 17 years old. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. That was a cool story. So we have a developmental issue? Yes. Yes, it's a predominantly developmental problem. Okay. So what are we talking about? So we are talking about Angelman syndrome, which is a genetic disorder that mainly affects the nervous system. So brains. Oh no. I know you struggle with this stuff. I need more coffee! Yeah, well, as a result, there are some quite broad symptoms. Okay, let's keep things simple today. <laughs> I'll do my best. So there's a uh, developmental delay is found in all cases, and it's functionally severe. What does that mean? It means that these, de- these uh, developmental delays can really affect how you learn and work. So in the case of Angelman syndrome, well... It can mean that it could be years before someone says their first words, for example, or instead of being able to walk at like the age of one, it could be like with uh, James Farrell, where it was just before his fourth birthday, which compared to a lot of other children, that's quite noticeable, and that can be very difficult. Okay, so this is a condition that affects people's lives up there with me, like Down syndrome in terms of developmental issues? I would say that... This one is typically more severe on the developmental issues. More severe, okay. Because Down syndrome isn't always... So Down syndrome has quite a wide spectrum, but Angelman syndrome tends to tends to tilt to the more severe more frequently. Okay. So there are other symptoms. Uh, speech impairment, as I kind of mentioned there. So people either can speak a little bit, or they start learning to speak very late, or they are unable to speak at all. What? Yeah. 
However, they are receptive and non-verbal communication skills are higher than their verbal ones, so they understand what you're saying. They just may not be able to articulate or even vocalize what they are thinking and instead need to use gestures or writing. Whoa, okay. So I've only ever heard about an in it an inability to speak in terms of like somebody who's mute or lacks I guess the the physical like muscles to speak. But this is they have all of that, but the bit of their brain that can translate the thoughts into words doesn't work. Basically, yes. Oh my gosh, that's that's a nightmare. <laughs> it's quite frustrating. But at the same time, if if you've never known anything otherwise, that is just your life. That's not like something's been stripped from you. Yeah. So there isn't that same sort of trauma as we would associate with it. Yeah. So that's so interesting that they can understand and can learn nonverbal communication. So I guess somebody with this might be able to learn, if they had real difficulty speaking, could learn to write instead. Yes. However, one thing that does make that a little difficult is that uh, movement disorders are common in Angleman syndrome. Ah! Particularly uh, ataxia, which is a uh, basically a wobbly gait, uh, so it's an often a balance issue and coordinating your movements can be difficult. Okay, but can you walk? Yes, it just might be more difficult. Okay. Or it might take more time to learn how to walk in the first place, or you, you know, you might need an aid to help you, like a, a, a walking stick or a frame or something like that, because your balance is inconsistent. Okay, so again, it's not the musculature that's the problem, it's the signals from the brain. Yes. That's so interesting. This can also affect behaviour. Oh. So this one is interesting, actually. So what pe people with Angleman syndrome are often associated with being a atypically sunny disposition, having an atypically sunny disposition, so a lot of laughter, a lot of smiling, which is not something that you kind of tend to think of with hereditary conditions. No. So so is it that they're they're more likely to be happy? There's not really anything to suggest one way or the other, which makes it very difficult, and I think some of that might be our limitations in, a in being able to communicate properly with people and ask the right questions when using non-verbal communication, because we are so dependent on verbal communication as humans. However, what might also cause that is that uh, head shape can, not always, but can be dif different in people with Angleman syndrome. How so? So you can end up with what's called a delayed and disproportionate growth of the head circumference, which means that you end up with a slightly smaller head. Okay. You can also, if you have Angleman syndrome, you can also have a wider mouth than would be typically expected for your head size, alongside a prominent lower lip and a smaller chin, which kind of shapes your face into what looks more like a smile. Oh, so they may look like they're smiling more often. Okay. But laughter is more frequent, so it's not just that they might look like they're smiling more often. There are behaviours that they do more frequently that you would associate normally with joy. And the, the laughter's not necessarily from the emotion behind it? No, not necessarily. This could be a bit like how schizophrenics will laugh at inappropriate times sometimes due to uh, possibly inappropriate signalling between different parts of the 
the brain that are responsible for emotion or possibly an just an involuntary signal being sent. Oh, okay. So I've just pulled a picture up on my phone to kind of get a sense of what this might look like. And it, it reminds me very much of, I hate to keep comparing to Down syndrome, but I think it's what people are more likely to be familiar with. And you often see representations of individuals with these developmental issues as often very, very cheerful, very smiley. And I'd never realized that it might be because of the face shape or involuntarily rather than just their emotions. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to say that, you know, that people with Angleman syndrome aren't happy. They they can't, they are often, you know, they're like, just like with everyone else, you can be happy a lot of the time. But what we associate with them being happy isn't always correct. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to remember that next time. I meet somebody with a condition like this. Yeah, it does It does kind of give you pause for thought, doesn't it? Yeah. There are some more severe symptoms as well. More, more, more severe than possibly not being able to speak or well, have movement coordination? Well, yeah, so the movement coordination itself can make it a little bit more tricky to swallow. Oh. Which can be problematic. Yeah. And also, due to this kind of improper development in the brain, you can have signalling issues which results in seizures. Oh. So that can be very unpleasant and, and very traumatising these... to families. It's not guaranteed. Someone with Angleman syndrome is not guaranteed to have seizures, but it is often associated with the condition. And do these seizures cause further damage or are they just kind of your brain going haywire? It would depend on the severity of the seizure. Uh, severe seizures can actually kill people, ah. but that is rarely the case in seizures full stop or in this condition. Uh, seizures can start quite early in Angleman syndrome, as early as three years old. That's so scary. Yes, yeah, this is a yeah. That's a terrifying thing for a parent to deal with at that time when they're learning. How, well, in some cases, the child may not have even been diagnosed yet, but when they're learning, you know, these different developments, and you have the stress with, because, you know, parents have, like, these different milestones they're told that they need to keep an eye on for their children, like, you know, what day do they, uh, what day do they roll on their back, what day do they have their first steps, and if all of these are already being delayed, you're already stressed, and then your child starts having a seizure, that's terrifying. Ah. There is also... And I think I'm probably going to need to explain this a little bit, but you can end up with abnormal EEG readings for patients with Angleman syndrome. EEG. That that one of the things where they put stickers on your chest? No, that's an ECG. So ECG stands for electrocardiogram, and EEG stands for electroencephalogram. Oh, your brain. Yes. So in this case, it's kind of stickers stuck to your head. And then they read the, uh, what, like, a different signals sent by the brain electronic, electrically. So you'll have these different wave readings, and they all have certain shapes that they're supposed to have. And there's one group of these waves that's called slow spike waves. And what happened is that these waves are bigger than they should be. Okay. Anybody know what that actually means? I, I don't because I'm not really a neurologist, but it... I don't ultimate. I don't know the specifics of it. I just know that what that means is part of your brain is sending 
a stronger signal than it should be. Okay. And considering how how important it is that everything is in balance in your brain, that can be a problem. And that might be what part of what triggers a seizure. Okay. But don't don't hold me to that one. I'm not an expert in that area by any stretch. That's fine. I don't really feel like becoming a neurologist today. Okay, so to summarize, we have Engelmann's is a developmental condition that can affect severely speech and movement and cause seizures, generally really, really disrupt somebody's life. Ah, this one's sad. It can be. Okay, so how do you diagnose Engelmann's? So typically the first thing you need to do is diagnose based off of symptoms. So when a doctor is looking at a child typically that they believe has Angelman syndrome or may have Angelman syndrome, they need to check if the child has a history of delayed motor milestones and then if there is a later delay in general development. So if that happens, so if the child is not able to, you know, crawl when they should be or they, they, don't, they didn't walk around about their first birthday, then that's one sign. And then if later the child is having trouble with speech, then that's the next uh, that's the next sign that would lead to diagnosis. So it can take quite a while. It can do. It can do. It often takes a while before you would really necessarily bring it to someone's attention, but also you have frequent appointments with the doctor when you have a child because they want to check these milestones. Mm-hmm. Unusual movements is also what will be used for diagnosis, particularly tremors, jerky limb movements, or hand flapping. And this is because they're uncoordinated movements. Oh, okay. In some cases, the facial appearance that we described will be used for diagnosis, but not all patients have it. Yep. And a happy disposition and frequent laughter is sometimes a warning sign as well. Which sounds kind of sad. Yeah, that's such a strange diagnostic tool. Your baby is too happy. Yeah, exactly. But I guess if, you know, if they're happy at the doctors, maybe that's the problem. Like out comes the needle and the child's still smiling. That I, you know, maybe that's not maybe that's not uh, as normal. <laughs> I don't think children are as scared of the doctors as dogs are of the vet. <laughs> no, but a lot of children do not like the uh, like having their shots. So if they're still ha- if they're still laughing after they've had their shot, then maybe that's the that that would be a sign. Maybe. But uh, otherwise, what you can then also do is look at the DNA and. What you what someone will see when they um, in a patient with Angelman syndrome is a deletion in a section of a chromosome. Okay, chromosome. That's not a gene. Correct. <laughs> My brain's working really hard here, Ant. Do you need a breakdown? Yeah. Okay. So remember in like biology class when you did the uh, little um, you go through the process of cell replication and there's mm-hmm. those little uh, there's those little um, sections where they, the bits of DNA all line up before yeah. being split. Those are chromosomes. They're the packages of DNA. So you know how you have the different ones? You have chromosome 1, 2, 3, 4, X, Y. They are all specific packages, and you get one from your mum and one from your dad. Mm-hmm. Now, the chromosomes themselves, if you open them, are a big string of DNA. And any string of DNA within it that makes a protein is a gene. So chromosomes can have lots of genes in them. Okay. 
So if a section of a chromosome is missing, that can then affect one or many genes. Okay, so it is a issue with the gene. You're just saying it's an issue with the chromosome because it's a big chunk missing. Yes, typically. And that's why, that's what they often spot when they're looking for this condition. I guess, is it easier to find than some of the other conditions we cover because it's a bigger section? Well, I, I'm i not sure. If, I, I think it might be visible. So it might be one of these things where you look at a diff- what If a section's missing from a chromosome, sometimes that changes the shape of the chromosome. So, strangely, haemophilia, for example, the X chromosome is actually a slightly different shape compared to a non-mutated one. Wait, when you look at cells, can can you see all the little X's lined up in pairs? At certain stages of development and uh, under a certain powerful magnification, yes. Whoa! So if you get the chromosome... Do they depth, actually look like X's? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Wow! I assumed that was simplified for my understanding. No, no, the, they were um, they're based off of drawings of people originally seeing chromosomes. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, so if enough of a chromosome is missing, then you can see it. Yeah, because either it might be shorter or the shape will change. Wow. So it might bend where it shouldn't. Science is cool. So in that situation, that is a cheaper way of doing it than sequencing the DNA. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. I got very distracted by cool science. What were we saying? We were going through diagnosis, and that was the final part of the diagnosis, looking at the DNA. Okay, so it's easier to find than some of the other conditions because it's a big chunk of a chromosome missing. Yeah, in some ways. Cool. And what's the outlook like for patients? Well, you'll be happy to know that typically life expectancy is unaffected. Yay! However, obviously, if there are other complications or it's very severe... That might differ. Okay, so what is what, what is somebody's life like with Engelman's? Do they have to have supportive care? Yeah, so people with Engelman syndrome can often live independent lives from their families. However, that is with the provision that you have a comprehensive supportive network. Now, this might just mean that you have like nursing systems and care systems in place to support you so that you can then work, or in more severe cases, it might mean that you are in care facility. Okay. Well, that's really cool that people can be supported to live independent lives. Yes. Yes, it is. I'm assuming that when we go into the history, we see much less of that? Um, we'll see. Oh, no. Okay, so... What are the treatments available? I assume no cure because it's a, it's a developmental issue? You are correct. There is currently no cure. See, I'm learning the science. Yes, you are getting there. It's very good. That sounded so patronizing. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> yes, that was good. Thank you. So there is no cure. So instead, doctors deal with the symptoms. So one of the most problematic ones is epilepsy. Yeah. Or the seizures. That's a problem. So, anticonvulsant drugs. Not too surprising there. Yeah. Otherwise, sleeping problems can also exist in uh, patients. So, melatonin is given to promote sleep. Why sleeping problems? Well, if your brain is being affected, you know, your brain is also responsible for your sleep cycle. Oh, okay. 
and also in some cases because the uh, nerves responsible for coordinating movement can also sometimes have an effect on your guts. Constipation is quite common and therefore laxatives are used to encourage proper bowel movement. And oh. you find that in quite a few neurological conditions. Never thought of that before. Nerves go everywhere. Your brain sends signals to all those nerves. A lot can go wrong in a lot of places. Yeah. And physiotherapy is often used to encourage joint mobility. Because although coordinating the movements are difficult, the muscles are capable of moving, and therefore with enough physiotherapy it can help maintain independence. Yeah, that makes sense. So with the movement, I guess many individuals with Engelmans won't exactly be playing varsity football, but they can still get around. Yeah, and you know, it, there's nothing to say that they that uh, they can't play in like Paralympic sports or anything like that. Um, because those are broken down into people based on their needs. People um, people with Engelmann can be represented in sport. Cool. So I guess a lot of the care people will receive with Engelmanns is less on these medical treatment sides, but on the support growing up through schooling and helping them develop those speech skills or reading and writing and helping in the educational areas. Yes, a lot of it is developmental care. Do you want to know what kind of condition or what kind of genetic disorder this is? Yeah. So this one's a little odd. It's rarely inherited. Okay. So someone with Angelman syndrome rarely has children with Angelman syndrome. So it's recessive? No. No? No, no. By, by not inherited, I mean that they don't pass it on at all. Like, they don't have children with the condition or they just don't pass it on. What happens in most cases is that it actually occurs from a random mutation. Oh, surprise Engelmans. Yes. And interestingly, we know that this tends to happen from a deletion in chromosome 15 during egg formation in the mother. Okay, wait, that was a lot of words. So that chromosome that we said that goes a bit funny, mm -hmm. we know that it goes wrong randomly inside the mother when the egg is being formed. Just... Just random, even though the mother doesn't have that problem. Yep. No! I hate these surprise ones! Yeah. In cases where it does end up getting inherited, it's autosomal dominant. But you said it's not... It's rarely inherited. Okay. So, dominant, we know it's not linked to the X or Y chromosome, because you told me the other chromosome it's linked to. Yes, autosome. Yes. And dominant? Dominant means if your mother or father had it, they can pass it on to you quite easily. You just need one copy, yeah. Yeah. But apparently that doesn't happen that often, and so now I'm just confused. Well, a lot of people with Angleman won't necessarily have children. That makes sense. But, like, I need rules, Aunt. You can't break the rules on me. Welcome to the world of life. No! So, the gene itself that's affected within this chromosome is called UBE3A. Now, the most common 
defect that leads to Angelman syndrome is a 4 megabase or 4 million base section being removed from chromosome 15, and this happens to affect that gene, UBE3A. That sounds really big. That is very big. I think usually when we've been discussing conditions, it's been like a couple of bases. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's a couple hundred at most, but four million is very big. I like that you guys have special words for numbers of bases. A megabase. Yeah. Yeah, we have kilobases, megabases. See, those are some good science words. Much less boring than some of the other ones you tell me. I think you should rename all words in science so that they are cooler. Yeah, but then you end up going in, in with like the weird fly lot that call their stuff like Cheap Date and Sonic for their genes, and then you realise that they're a little too obsessed with their organism. No, I'm here for the fly people. Yeah, okay, whatever. So, do you want to know what this mutation actually means? Do I? Yeah, I think you do. Okay. So, the gene UBE3A makes an enzyme. When you have this mutation, you end up with a shorter enzyme that doesn't work. Okay. That means that it's not able to do its job, which during development, this enzyme breaks down proteins that your cells no longer need, so they've fulfilled their function, uh, or they're faulty. Okay, it so it's a, it's a clean-up enzyme. Yes. So with it not working, you get a buildup of all these kind of defunct proteins, dysfunctional proteins, and junk proteins, which then basically gums up the works. It doesn't allow your nerve cells to make the connections with other nerves that they need to for development. Okay, so basically, you don't make the, the right brain janitors. Yeah, and as a result, things get messy, and they don't go the way they should. Okay, so does that mean you are developing all of the right cells? The cells are there. The cells are there, but there's stuff in the way? Yeah, so within the cells themselves, they're kind of clogged up with additional crap. Okay. So... And that makes it harder for them to then do their job properly, which involves making connections with other cells, which is how learning works. Okay, so you can't make all the connections you need, even though you have all the bits in place to. So what would happen if you fixed the brain janitor and it came in and cleaned everything up? Or is it too late? It depends on how early you did that. If you did that right at the beginning, then maybe things could progress as normal. But the later you do it, the more damage has already been done. Okay. I, I think I understand this one, and. As long as you call it brain janitors, I'm fine. Good. And one thing that's also worth noting, part of development, if cells no longer make connections with each other, then your body might get rid of them. And that's oh. kind of like about, you know, not keeping things that are unnecessary. Oh, so your other brain janitors work to get rid of the cells? Yeah. Overzealous. So... Just can't get the staff these days. So it can make development quite difficult. Yeah, interestingly... This happens to affect particular parts of the brain more than others. Okay, I'm not even going to pretend I know about the parts of the brain. Don't worry, I'll break down what they are, or the, I'll break down the affected parts, but there's a reason for this. Chromosome 15, for some reason, 
tends uh, the mother's copy is switched on more frequently in these parts of the brain, which also means that even if you inherit a faulty UBE3A gene from your dad, there's a good chance that you won't get symptoms just because those parts of the brain have switched that gene off. Oh, wait, so it's not... it. So when you have mother and fathers, you it's not like 50% of people use the mothers, 50% use the fathers. Not always. And in this case, more people tend to use the mothers. Yes. Just because science... We don't know the reason yet, so yeah. Whoa. Okay. And the parts of the brain that are affected more often and are the hippocampus, which is a section that's responsible for learning and long-term memory, the cortex, which is like the outer part of the brain, and that's responsible for uh, predominantly for attention, perception, awareness, thought, memory, language, and consciousness. Those are a lot of really important things. Yeah, and you can see why this causes developmental issues with learning as a result. The thalamus, which is a part of the brain that is predominantly associated with movement and emotion. And you can see why you might get like behavioral issues. The olfactory bulb, so apparently smell can get affected in some cases. And the cerebellum, which is the, when you look at a brain and you see that kind of little semicircle bit stuck to the bottom of the brain that looks kind of like a peach core, that's the cerebellum. And it's responsible for coordinating movement. Ah. So that's where you get a lot of this uh, um, uncoordinated movement and balance issues. Okay, so lots of brain problems. Yep. And how common is this? So it's not precisely known how common this condition is. However, there have been some estimates that have been made that run between one in every 10,000 and one in every 20,000 births. So rare. Yes, it is a rare condition. One in 10,000 is what you what's normally the threshold for determining a rare disease. And because it's not super rare, it does mean that it is quite uh, enticing for pharmaceutical companies to try and work out treatments for the condition because as a rare disease you can get what's called orphan drug status which basically means your patent lasts longer you can go through slightly quicker clinical trials so it basically costs a little bit less and you can and you get a little bit longer to make your money back from the condition just so that, just to incentivize companies to actually research for those diseases mm -hmm. but because it's like one in 10 to 20,000 rather than one in a million, there are enough people afterwards that it's quite feasible to see decent returns. So this is something that a lot of companies, as because we have these orphan drug protocols in place, will look at conditions like Angelman syndrome and go, this is worth researching in, which is encouraging. Yeah. There are some other complications caused by this condition. Oh no, I feel like we already covered so many. Yeah, so remember how I said that dif difficulty swallowing is an issue? Yeah. That can cause feeding problems. Yeah. Also, as I said before, you know, melatonin is often used to help with sleeping. Well, sleep disorders are quite bad. So patients who have sleep disorders due to Angelman syndrome typically don't get more than five hours of sleep a night. No! But sleep! Sleep is so good, Ant! I know, you are so dependent on sleep. Like, 
I can just about get by on five hours, but... Nope, five hours and I would not be a functioning human. You can't really get by on seven, so... No. Nope. Actually, can I go back to sleep now? That would be great. No, we've got to finish this. Scoliosis is also a problem. I guess maybe due to lack of coordination of muscle movements, maybe... So that's curvature of the spine. Yeah, maybe this causes postural issues. Huh. And that leads to curving of the spine. Maybe. I'm not sure. Um, obesity. Obesity? Yes. So, I, I guess due to some of these issues with um, thought, impulse, and emotion being, you know, as difficult to control, uh, children um, with Angelman syndrome tend to have large appetites, and this can lead to obesity. So they don't. They have like a strong impulse to eat with a, a less strong kind of signal of sati satiation, and therefore they can end up overeating. Oh, okay. So obesity caused because of issues with impulse control and overeating, rather than obesity caused by metabolism issues. Yes, not a guarantee, but that is what, what can happen. Interesting. And on that note, we're going to take a break. Okay. See you soon. Welcome back, everyone. Is it history time? Yes, it's history time. Is there good history on this one? There's some interesting history. Oh, it's going to be sad, isn't it? No, it's just difficult. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, so as far as written records go, there is nothing reliable before the 1900s. That's quite recent. Yeah, so we don't have, like, you know, we don't have genetic data on mummies or anything like that that suggests Ankerman syndrome. We don't have, you know... Cases from Hippocrates or any or or Pliny the Elder, the way we look at it, and we go, "Oh, yeah, that must have been Angelman syndrome." There's nothing that we can look at and go, "Clearly, they were referring to this," despite not knowing about it at the time. There's, there's, it's too kind of nebulous. Yeah, but I assume that it did exist before 1900. Oh yeah, definitely. There is a debatable case from the 1500s. So. There's a child painted by the artist Giovanni Francesco Caroto, uh, and it's in his piece that's known as a Portrait of a Child with a Drawing. And this child might have had Angelman Syndrome. So when you look at him, it's a smiling child, wild, wide face. So it could be the case. But that's very hard to say because we've just got one painting to go by. Yeah, it's not the best evidence. It could just be that he was bad at doing faces. I don't know what this artist's <laughs> like. Could just be a bad artist. Yeah, like, I, I, I don't want to say, like, look at someone's portrait of someone and go, oh, they must have this medical condition. It's more feasible that the person just exaggerated a feature. Yeah. As a result, we don't really have much on it. And unfortunately, before you asked, we can't trace the genetic mutation because it's a surprise yeah because it comes randomly and i was unable to find it in other species that weren't 
model organisms that we've made have the condition. Oh. So it doesn't mean it Wait, don't... we've been making... We've been giving Engelmans to... Is it mice? Mice, yes. So what you do is you, you make a, mice li- a mouse line, you cause a mutation in it, and then you, breed, you keep breeding them so you have, a, uh, you have a lineage of mice that have this mutation. And then you can do studies on them to work out how to treat symptoms and conditions, and hopefully they can then be used in people. I, un- I appreciate why it needs to be done, but it's really sad to think about us giving little mice Engelmans. Yeah. Why else do you think Pinky and the Brain are always so angry at people? <laughs> Narf! We'll do the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Anyway, on that segue, <laughs> really the only good history we have is around about the time that Angleman Syndrome was characterised. Okay, uh, I'll take a guess. 1920? Uh, let's see. Uh, no? Not a bad guess, though. So it was actually 1965. Oh. Yeah, we have a terrible record on this. <laughs> Gosh, wow, nobody cared about Engelmans for a very long time. Nobody understood it. Yeah. I mean, it's a rare condition, so it's going to be a bit trickier. And I guess it would have been confused with all with other developmental issues. Yes, there would be a lot of that. And particularly in the 50s and 60s, there were some quite derogatory terms used for people with uh, with developmental issues, so people may not wanted to put much work into it because of how demeaning it would be to put like your child forward for research. Yeah, Angel. He's looking for his amber. I have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, about it being derogatory to do research, as I said. Humans are kind of terrible. We really can be, and it doesn't help that much with this condition either. So. Harry Angleman was a paediatrician working in Warrington in England, and he first reported children with this condition in 1965. However, he originally called them puppet children due to their appearance. Their parents were not particularly happy. What? But it was because... What? His reasoning, um, and I don't support it, was that it was a very clear way to distinguish the condition and distinguish are you kidding me yeah puppet children this was in the 60s due to the the different face face shape oh my goodness yeah no i don't agree with it either what were they calling it before then because you said it was characterized in the 1900s well no i said reliable cases didn't come from the 1900s and was first characterized by this guy in 1965 and he called it puppet children I'm so angry. Yep. We have had a terrible history that is still terrible. Uh, So the sad thing was, though, that his findings remained unexplored by others until the 80s, when cases were being reported in the US. (sighs) So it was characterised by one doctor, given a pretty bad name, and then it took 20 years before anyone decided to follow up on this work and maybe start properly characterizing it as a condition. And this whole time there will have been... Like, it's rare, but still, there will have been so many people growing up with this condition, facing so much stigma and no understanding and no treatment. Incorrect diagnoses. <sighs> yeah. So, 
Yeah, and then in 1987, it was first noted that around half of children with Angelman syndrome had a small piece of chromosome 15 missing. So remember how I said you can sometimes see the changes in the chromosome? Yeah. This was the first time that they did that. So at least we then started characterizing the issue and we could find a way of diagnosing it quite reliably. Yeah. At least in half cases, which is... You know, not bad when it comes to genetics in the 80s. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, as I say, our his- the history on this one is um, interesting. When did it get renamed? So, it was renamed after Harry Angleman in the 80s once these cases were being reported in the States. Thank God somebody thought to rename it. Well, yeah, it was pretty bad beforehand. Did they have to call it after that guy, though? Did they? You know how it works with this, sadly. They often name it after them. Think of Crohn's disease with that as well. Yep. Or Werner syndrome, or basically any of them. Yeah, nobody's very inventive. Well, they just like credit. Well, I guess when he was inventive, it, it was a terrible idea, so... Yeah, I think I think <laughs> Angleman syndrome is a good example of why doctors should not be creative on naming conditions. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd hate to think of what what they would have come up with for Crohn's disease. Exploding gut syndrome? Maybe that would be the best outcome for it? But anyway, I digress. Should we move on to something a little bit nicer, like where we're going with this condition? Yeah, that was not fun history. No. As I said, interesting, not nice. Okay, let's move on. So, there is some hope for treatment. Yeah. So, we've been doing gene editing. Okay, but it's a developmental issue. So, the earlier you get it during the development, the less effect it has. Okay, is this something we screen for? We don't typically screen for the very rare ones. That makes sense. So, we're using CRISPR editing, and... What's being done is you use CRISPR to insert bits of um, DNA back in. So if you create cuts in two locations and you then put in something that matches it, like a puzzle piece, it will stick in, and that way you can basically put back in the bit of DNA that's missing. Cool. And this has been showing promise in mouse and human neuron studies. So at the moment we've only been doing the tests on the cells. For it to be a preclinical trial, or a proper preclinical trial, we need to get those into a live animal. So that will be ma- mice that we have given Angleman syndrome, as you put it. And then after that, we could, if that shows promise, we can then go into the clinical trials. So I would think this is like 20 years down the line. Yeah. I assume it's kind of hard to get gene editing for babies through. Well, well, that's not really the issue here. The issue is that because this is a developmental condition, despite, like, one of the quick tests you would do would be to look at enzyme activity of this proper enzyme, make sure that the proper enzyme is being made. Mm -hmm. But because it has developmental effects, these are probably going to have to be quite slow studies because you're going to have to see what effect it has because there's very long-term effects to making these changes. Yeah, and it so it could help if you used it early enough, but it probably couldn't completely cure. Yeah, I think you said that the Angleman Syndrome Foundation was reporting something that they, in quotes, called a cure. And I wouldn't go as far as to call it that, 
but at the same time I can see why you would say it like that because you could kind of if you get it early enough you could undo the damage and then because you then allow development you know it then isn't kind of affected once the developmental process is finished so someone's like in their 20s you then don't need to use it anymore and no other therapies are necessarily needed if you manage to avoid the damage that's been done so it could be viewed by some as a cure but i wouldn't strictly call it one yeah it's the articles are about the gene therapy yeah yeah it would be um so there's still a long way to go for it but it is promising it's exciting that people are looking into it yeah yeah and there are some clinical trials that are currently ongoing so there's one drug that's undergoing phase one so that's just testing in healthy people to make sure it's not poisonous and there's another drug that's undergoing phase two, which is where you test in a small group of people with the condition to see if it uh, if it does have an effect and what dose is best to avoid side effects whilst having a good effect. And uh, the details about the drugs themselves are unfortunately scarce. Uh, I did try to find patents on them and things like that, but it's difficult because they tend to apply for a patent with a brand name and all of the clinical trials are using serial numbers from the company so i can't find anything on this and that's intentional but the drug is administered by what's called an intrathecal injection which means that they send it straight into the spine ah. so this is going to be uh, an injection that's going to be, need to be done with either local or general anesthetic when given but if it has long-term beneficial effects that's a good thing yeah so those ones could be a lot sooner and they could be showing some promise. Yay! Okay, so what are some myths around this condition? I'm guessing there's a few? Yeah, there are a few and it'd be it'd be good for us to try and address a couple of them now and everyone can then bear that in mind and maybe help out others. So first myth is that you can tell that someone has Angleman syndrome by looking at them. That is not necessarily the case. As we said, those facial changes do exist, but not in everyone. Yep. The second myth is that people with Angleman syndrome aren't walking because people always carry them. What? So this is a whole kind of blaming the parents for coddling them situation, despite the fact that this is a neurological condition, which means that they genuinely can't do this at certain points. Oh, that's annoying. No, just... Try not to judge other parents for doing their thing. Everyone's just doing their best. Yep, and this is why I don't ever, ever want you to look at one of those mummy forums when you start getting stressed, because they are 50% helpful, 50% bile. Yeah, if I ever get pregnant, you're going to do a lot of um, taking my phone away, I think. The third myth that I found is that People with Angleman syndrome must be happy because they always look happy. As we discussed, turns out that might not be true. No, because they have issues with expression. It's difficult because of the developmental uh, problems. So this isn't necessarily the case. They can look happy and not actually be happy. They might be happy, but you know what? Maybe try communicating with the individual themselves and find out. Yeah. This one, as we discussed, is just so interesting because it it's not something you even think about that the expression might not match the emotion. 
well, it's so ingrained into how we think. Yeah. The uh, fourth myth is that XYZ dietary suggestion or XYZ dietary changes will solve the problem. And uh, as usual, diet is not something you should be telling anybody else how to do. Just no with that one. No. Nope. Let doctors be in charge of diet. Yeah. Not PubMed. No, well, not WebMD. And myth five is that behavioural issues are due to a lack of proper discipline. These are developmental problems. They are much more complicated than disciplinary issues. Just let parents do their thing. Yeah. Being a parent looks really hard. Try not to judge them. Yeah, if you're not a professional developmental psychologist or psychiatrist or a neurologist, I think you should just back off on this one. Yeah. It, th th this, this isn't your area. And this is not a simple condition. And on that note, we are at the end of the episode. That one was really cool. So I do have a little bit of reading for those that are uh, in the space to try. So there's uh, a journal article that's called Cas9 Gene Therapy for Angelman Syndrome Traps UBE3A ATS Long Non-Coding RNA, and this is by Walter et al. So that is just the paper that explains how this gene therapy is working. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, as I said, you know, if you want to try. Like, this is not something I'm expecting everyone to read. You're not going to. Nope. For more accessible information, the Engelman Syndrome Foundation or at the Engelman Syndrome Foundation at Engelman.org seems like it has lots of cool stuff. Okay, that's a good one then. That that would be a lot more accessible in general. <laughs> you think? <laughs> so if you enjoyed this episode or have any comments or questions, get in touch with us. Leave us a review on iTunes or email us at genetic drift podcast. Or tweet us at Genetic Drift One. Yep. You can also join our Facebook group and get in on the conversation if you'd like. I tried so hard, Ant. I know. The music for this podcast, as with every episode, is produced by William Kitchen Music, so please check that out. And on that note, I'd just like to say withhold your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.